Welcome. I'm Leslie Canham. I'm Mary Gavoni. I'm Linda Harvey. I'm Olivia Wan, and together we are the Compliance Divas. Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Compliance Divas podcast. Today, we're going to focus on something scary that could happen to you. Oh, no, I just got poked. You've just had an exposure incident. We bring clarity and simplicity to compliance by navigating the regulatory compliance environment to keep you on course. Subscribe to the Compliance Divas podcast on a podcast channel of your choice or go to the Compliance Divas website to download. Resources we mentioned during our podcast can be found on the compliancedivas.com. And of course, we always welcome your questions to support at the compliancedivas.com. NIOSH estimates that between 600,000 and 800,000 needle sticks occur each year in healthcare settings. TDIC, the dentist insurance company, states that needle sticks are the number one type of injury that occurs in a dental office. So when an exposure incident or needle stick occurs, immediate action must be taken to expedite medical treatment for the exposed employee to prevent infection and to comply with OSHA regulations. If you get stuck, do you know exactly what to do? In this episode, we will walk you through the steps. First of all, if you have an exposure incident, you're at your chair site. Imagine you're either assisting a doctor or you're the provider of the hygienist or the doctor. What's the first thing that you're gonna do? Well, it starts with first aid. You're gonna wash the wound and please use soap and water. Don't use surface disinfectants, bleach, rubbing alcohol, or even surface disinfectants that state that they kill hepatitis and HIV. They're not to be effective on your skin. Your skin has been traumatized by the exposure incident. And we want to make sure that you don't further traumatize the injury by adding something that would be more caustic or more toxic to your skin. Secondly, you want to immediately report your exposure incident to someone in your practice who will be able to take over from there and walk you through the steps of making sure that you expedite medical care if it needs to be more than first aid and, of course, fill out the appropriate exposure incident forms. Now, Mary, could you explain to us how we might determine the risk once we've been poked with a contaminated instrument? What's the next step? Absolutely, Leslie. The first step is actually determining that there is a risk at all. Um, In many cases, we hear from um, team members that say they got a needle stick, but it actually was with a sterile needle when they were putting a syringe together from the hub end of, of the needle. So the exposure would happen from a a used needle, perhaps in a recapping procedure, um, an inappropriate recapping procedure, um, an instrument that was on the tray or a scalpel blade that might've been on the tray or something that um, is contaminated with with blood and or saliva. But sometimes injuries happen when an instrument has when the instruments are being reprocessed because not everyone is wearing their um, puncture resistant utility gloves. So the the, um, exposure might happen as the instruments are being placed in the ultrasonic unit or um, being replaced in a cassette to go in the instrument washer, or the poke may happen when 
the instruments are removed from the ultrasonic unit and they're being dried and packaged ready for sterilization. So there is a slight difference in the potential risk of the exposure incident from one it, from an instrument or an item that's been cleaned. It's not removed because remember, it's not a sterile instrument, but it's less if there's visible blood. And in many cases, if you call the facility where you send uh, employees for post-exposure testing, they're going to ask you questions about that. Was there visible blood on the instrument? Um, tell us a little bit about the exposure because they're going to do some triage for you before you even go for, for testing. So the, the main thing is to, again, make sure that it truly is an exposure, that it wasn't with a sterile instrument or item, that it actually had been used on the patient, it was contaminated. And then you need to make sure that you start recording. Once you do the first aid, which um, as Leslie said, is the first step, then you start to record that instrument or that incident, what happened, um, when and how and who was involved, document all the, all the information that you need. Now, some dental practices have been notified by OSHA that they need to use the OSHA record keeping forms, the 300 and the 300A and the 301. Most practices are exempt from that, but if your practice is, uh, has been notified, then you need to use those forms and make sure that if you don't have to use those, that you pull a form from your OSHA manual and start recording it and start recording it as soon as possible because you may forget some of the details. Thanks, Mary. That's so important to know. And uh, I would always caution people to err on the side of caution rather than just uh, assuming an instrument is not contaminated. If it commingled with other instruments that were contaminated, let's just call it a contaminated instrument. Another thing that I might mention before we move on to other questions that we go further to discover how much of a risk it is, is that while well, the needle stick is one form of an exposure incident, a percutaneous injury can be any kind of a sharp that penetrates the barrier of your skin or, or anybody bites you and breaks your skin, or if you have compromised skin and you get splashes of blood or saliva on those areas, those also can be considered exposure incidents. Now, let's not forget about exposure incidents to the mucous membranes. So if we wear our proper PPE, the likelihood of that is really reduced so greatly that uh, I've not even heard of anybody having, uh, only a few, I can count on one hand, having an exposure to their eyes, nose, or mouth. And of course, those kinds of exposures would require uh, first aid to be flushing at an eyewash station and to follow the rest of the steps to determine where we're going to go forward with what we've been exposed to. And that's where, Linda, I'd like you to pick up with uh, what kind of information do we gather from the source patient whose blood or body fluid we were exposed to either percutaneously through an instrument, through the skin, or permucosally splashes to our eyes, nose, or mouth? The bloodborne pathogen standard has some very specific criteria for what the dental practices need to be doing once an incident occurs, especially related to the source control patient or the source patient. And first, the bloodborne pathogen standard requires that the source individual's blood be tested as soon as feasible and after consent is obtained um, in order to determine that individual's infectivity for HIV and hepatitis B. 
Now, we all know that the bloodborne pathogen standard went into effect in the early 90s, and so that was before there was really much of anything uh, known about hepatitis C. So nowadays, going forward, you would include the hepatitis C status. And that if the consent is not obtained, then the employer is obligated to establish that the required consent could not be obtained. In other words, document that, that the patient was asked and they refused. So another aspect of that, Leslie, is first we want to look at the source individual's medical history to determine if they've already noted that they have been positive, say, for HIV. Because at that point, you would not need to retest the individual again, but there are still the other factors, whether it's hepatitis B or hepatitis C, that you would still want the individual to be tested for. It can be challenging, though, when the patient uh, is a pediatric patient. How do you approach the parent? So usually what I recommend is to approach the source individual, whether it's a patient, adult patient, or parent of a pediatric patient, and just acknowledge that an incident had happened today. And I would refrain from using the words dirty or contaminated instruments, so that way it doesn't impart anything negative on that patient, because we don't want them to think that we already assume that they are positive or that there's an issue. We're really trying to seek their assistance and helping us to be compliant. So I think if we take that sort of approach then we're very much more likely to have the patient or the parent to go ahead and consent to having their blood tested. But ultimately, Leslie, the patient, aka or parent, can decline. So it's very important in how it's approached to be sure that we obtain uh, their assistance in helping us to be compliant. You're so right, Linda. And we don't want to insult the patient by implying that maybe they were hiding something from us on their health history form. And we don't want to insult a parent by implying that perhaps their you know, six or 16-year-old child has uh, hepatitis or HIV. There's a, a way we might word this. And I would encourage uh, all dental teams to have sort of a script that they practice of how they would approach the patient. And of course, if the doctor or supervisor or office manager is, is available to provide that conversation with the patient, it's best. But sometimes a hygienist or an assistant may be on their own providing care for a patient. And I always coach that the best way is to say to the patient, we just had an exposure incident that involved some of your blood. Uh, either myself or one of our assistants uh, was poked with an instrument. And, uh, you know, following all laws and regulations at this practice, we need to ask you if you've ever been diagnosed with hepatitis or HIV. And they don't have an answer there. Uh, then also following best practices, would you be willing to have a blood test to see if there's anything in your blood that would cause infection for our team member. And, you know, that kind of a script is a, a, seems to be a little less, um, uh, uh, you know, insulting to a patient to just go at it from that particular standpoint. Um, so, Linda, can you give us a little bit more information about uh, how we would go forward if, let's say, an employee was poked with an instrument and then they did not want to have a medical evaluation. So what do we take with us if we are gonna go for medical evaluation? And what do we do if an employee declines? Leslie, I'm gonna jump in for Linda here. And actually we wanna give a shout out to Olivia, our diva who couldn't be with us here um, this morning. So um, what we need to do in terms of medical treatment for the employee is obviously 
offer them the opportunity to be tested and they can decline it if they choose to. But according to the bloodborne pathogen standard, if they decline, they do have the option of having their blood stored for up to 90 days. So in case they change their mind within that time frame, then they can go ahead um, and be tested for, as Linda said, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and um, HIV. The exposure incident records that we keep in the dental practice for the employees must be kept for the duration of their employment plus 30 years. So I always translate that as keep them forever. Um, don't get rid of them, but they have to be kept secured because they are considered to be confidential medical records. So they shouldn't be mixed in with personnel records. They shouldn't be saved in an OSHA manual. They should be in uh, either a paper folder or in a secure electronic file on the computer that there's limited access to so that that information can't be um, can't be disclosed. And one of the things we didn't really talk about much yet is, is making sure, I, I love your idea, Leslie, about having the script so that you can always fall back on, um, we're doing this because we're, we're legally required to if they question. We're not trying to imply anything about your or your child's health history, but we're doing the right thing that we're supposed to do. But we also need to make sure that we have a place designated ahead of time where employees can go for testing and where we could send our patients for testing. And we should never send employees to their um primary care physician, not that that physician isn't capable of treating that employee, but the, the possibility is that they don't have access to HIV testing, in particular rapid HIV testing, and they may not be familiar with post-exposure protocol. So we have to make sure that um, we, we're sending them to an appropriate place. Then they must make sure that they take along and, and as Olivia would tell us, this is very antiquated, but when the employee goes to the, the testing center, they have to take, according to the bloodborne pathogen standard, a copy of the bloodborne pathogen standard, not that probably they don't have it on file at the, at the facility. And then typically you take some type of form from your workers' compensation insurance company because these are occupational injuries that are covered by workers' comp. So that's sort of the paperwork that they need to take along with them when they go. Mary, that's great information to have. And I think that the, one of the best things that we have available for our uh, listeners is uh, an exposure incident protocol that they can use. It's what I consider to be the most important document of my OSHA bloodborne pathogen training that'll walk them through these steps and give enough information for them to put together their own action plan. And then in their own words, they can put together a script that can be practiced uh, by not only the doctors who have to ask the patients these sensitive questions about their status of hepatitis or HIV and testing, but the team members that may be left behind in a practice during the lunch hour or, um, you know, everybody's left for the, the day and they have an exposure incident, patient's still here, or, uh, you know, it's maybe hygienists who are working on days when doctors are not there. So this is a great uh, program today, this podcast, but before we close it out, I just wonder if the divas would do a quick round robin of exposure incidents that you think are noteworthy that'll help us remember 
to not make those kinds of mistakes. I well, know. I have, oh, Linda, go right ahead. Yeah, I have a story, Leslie. Several years ago, a dental assistant was sharing with me that she was disassembling not one, but two syringes at the same time. And so, of course, she ended up with some kind of needle stick. And it was a Thursday. She went home, didn't tell anybody, thought about it all weekend long. And her family and friends got her all nervous and upset. So by Monday, she's pretty freaked out. Like, I should have done something. I should have told somebody. And they called the patient. And, of course, by that time, the patient declined. However, the patient also disclosed that there were things in his his medical history that he had not divulged like a pre he was previously a drug user. So evidently this individual had reformed from that or made changes in their lifestyle and did not wish to put that down and acknowledge that on a health history. So sometimes patients don't always want to tell us or they're not comfortable telling us everything in their health history. So perhaps had she had addressed it a little sooner, she might've had a better outcome from the testing, but fortunately she um, tested and she was okay. Mary. One of the things that you just mentioned triggered something for me, Linda, and that is, you know, we don't wait till the end of the day or we don't wait till the next week to report that incident. A lot of times when a team member gets a cut or a puncture or something, they feel like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get in trouble or, or I did something wrong. And they're a little bit reluctant. Everybody on the team needs to understand that if you get an injury, accidents happen and you need to report it right away. And you should ideally go for testing um, as soon as possible meaning not wait till the end of the day necessarily, especially if you get some positive history on your patient's medical history, you go right then because the post-exposure protocol um, medication that's given for HIV works best within the first two hours of an exposure. It still works well up to 48 to 72 hours, according to the experts, but you got to do it right away. One of the worst injuries that I saw with one of the, the practices I was working with was a dental assistant who was removing a scalpel blade. So we still don't have a lot enough practices that are, have um, transitioned to using disposable scalpels. So if you're using a reusable handle, the way you remove that blade is number one, to remove it with a hemostat or a needle holder. And you do it in an area where you can rest both of your hands on a countertop surface and you point the scalpel blade away from you, not toward you. So this assistant was just had her hands kind of unsupported, had the, the hemostat on the end of the scalpel blade and slid it off toward her and she got a puncture um, in the belly. I see you cringing, Leslie, and absolutely, it was very cringeworthy. And to make it even worse, the patient that that scalpel was used on was HIV positive. So the good news for this dental assistant is that she got treatment right testing and treatment right away and um she never did as far as i know become hiv positive but wow that was a very high risk injury bloody scalpel blade on an hiv positive patient so we always have to be very 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 careful 
Wow, Mary, that certainly is something to consider. And I'm glad that you gave us the details of how to remove the scalpel blade from the scalpel handle. Uh, obviously, you know, OSHA would like us to use disposable scalpel handles, but clinicians aren't always comfortable with the weight and feel. I understand that. So one of the worst exposure incidents that I felt were cringeworthy was uh, one dental assistant shared with me that when she was cleaning up the treatment room after an endodontic procedure, she went to pick up the treatment tray and there was an endo file that was sitting just on the edge of the tray. So it caught her right between her fingernail and her finger, finger or nail bed of her finger. And it wasn't something that could be removed at the office. She actually had to go and have that, uh, that fingernail that, the, uh, frozen so that, that it could be peeled back and have that endo file removed. Another incident that uh, could have been avoided was an incident in the sterilization area while the assistant was wearing utility gloves, she was rolling instruments in a towel to dry them. And a very sharp scaler, of course, went right through the, the towel and where the way that her palm was positioned as she was rolling the instruments, it went right through her utility gloves. So while they are puncture resistant, as you stated, they're not puncture proof. We still need to be very careful. And that goes for transporting instruments from treatment room to sterilization room, always using a transport container or tub, hopefully with a locking lid so we don't drop them. I think that would, uh, covers most of, of at least what I have to say, but Mary, you had a final thought for our listeners? Well, I did. Another common injury that happens are people getting scraped or poked in the tushy um, by the burrs on the hand pieces. So we should make sure that if we still have burrs on hand pieces that they're turned around toward the bracket tray and not pointing out um, so that they can be prone to, to injuries. I had forgotten about that one. I've heard a lot about that. I think our training way back goes to remind us to, to position sharp instruments away from our body at all times to avoid accidents. Linda, a final thought from you? Well, not just a second that, but also just protecting your thighs too. I've had several clients get injured or team members get injured from the, the wand or a burp on the thigh from that same thing. But there was one incident I'll never forget in which there was a doctor had done an extraction and used a suture needle. And they dropped the suture needle on the floor and couldn't find it. And so it, the person who found it turned out to be the cleaning person because it was wedged up against the, um, the base of the chair somehow. And the cleaning individual got it in his toe because he was wearing sandals here in Florida and not close coat shoes. <laughs> so that was their workers' comp injury, but it was caused because the needle was dropped by somebody on the team and they couldn't find it. So so got to be very careful with everything because, you know, it just... Little things like you don't expect can come up. And so this was a great podcast, Leslie, and reminding everybody about all the safety aspects. Linda, thank you. And I want to also remind our listeners, we're going to have a couple of other resources for you uh, with this episode of the podcast on the Compliance Divas website. We'll have an OSHA facts sheet that has bloodborne pathogen exposure incidents. We'll also have something from NIOSH called uh, Bloodborne Infectious Diseases and Emergency Needle Stick Information. And I guess the best item is the jewel of this written protocol for the management of exposure incidents that you can share with your team. I encourage everyone to, at their very next team meeting, to go through exactly what steps your practice will take in the event of, ouch, I just got stuck. In closing, we bring clarity and simplicity to compliance by navigating regulatory compliance to keep you on course. Please submit your questions or comments to support at thecompliancedivas.com. Thanks for joining us, everyone.